I want to talk with you about getting ready this morning, as you see. I thought about some different things about what I would say this week, but I decided to go back to some basic material that I did some years ago when we had three hurricanes through here in 12 months or so, 13 months. And I talked to the church then, which was made up of a lot of different people. Many of you weren't obviously were not here in 04 and 05, but we had a different makeup of the church at that time. But I talked about preparation. Really, that's what the sermons are called in my list, preparation. Because many people were prepared for those storms, but many people were not. And I think that's what happens in life. And you see that's the case in this situation here in Florida with these hurricanes. Some people are prepared as about as well as you could be prepared for a situation like this. Other people are not prepared at all. And I suppose no matter how much warning you gave them, they wouldn't be prepared. There are various reasons for that. This is not, it's not a lesson about condemning people. It's a lesson about thinking ahead as Christians. And so I want to talk about this idea of getting ready. And I want you, to, we're going to talk about the ways that people live in the world. The gospel is not just about saving us from, from hell. It is that fundamentally. But Paul told Timothy that the gospel has a promise of the life that now is and the life that's to come. There is some benefit to the gospel and some teaching about the gospel in the life that is here and now. In fact, the preparation that's made for the life to come begins in this life. And part of Christian living is understanding this. I believe this is often a failure in preaching and teaching and in discipling of people that we do in churches that we are so caught up in people's feelings about the problems they're experiencing that we never really teach people how to how to live in this world. And the New Testament is filled with teaching about how we ought to live in this world among our fellow men. And I've got a whole, if you want to look on the website, I've got a whole series of sermons from three or four years ago on being sober and soberness that, that are about this idea because it's such an important idea in the New Testament. The idea of living a sober life. And that's not just talking about don't smoke grass. But it is talking about the idea of having our mindset uh, in a right-thinking way and directing our life that way. Being a servant of Christ is changing your mind. It's changing the way that you think, which changes the way that you live. And there is also something about uh, this that leads to order. Several times we'll see a couple of those verses this morning. The New Testament talks about Christians leading an orderly life. So often the way it's presented in the popular media, maybe in a lot of churches, being a Christian is just about feeling, getting warm, fuzzy feelings about the cross and doing whatever you want to in your life. And so here a Christian is supposed to be living an orderly life and they, they completely misuse all their money. They are always, even when they could be in a different situation, always in need because they lead a disorderly life. The disorder not only follows them in finances, it follows them in morality, in their marriages, in their relationships. It follows them at work while they can't keep a job because they live a disorderly life. Now, the Bible says something about that. Some of the things that people do in that regard are sinful. Some are just foolish mistakes. But the Bible speaks about that, and we as Christians ought to take heed. And I am particularly directing these thoughts to, to the young people of this congregation. And since I'm 70, that's anybody, or I'll be 70 in a month or so, since I'm 69 and 9 tenths or whatever, 
Uh, I'll direct it to anybody who's 68 and below. You young people need to get your act together. And those of you who are raising young people who have children and grandchildren that you have influence over, you really need to, to spend some time in a broad sense teaching them about this. You know, when the rabbis read the, saw the Proverbs, the teaching of the rabbis, we criticized what the rabbis said, but a lot of what they said was exactly right on the money. They basically said that the duty of a father was to teach his son how to make a living, how to provide for himself, how to take care of himself and those people around them. That is exactly right, 100% correct. That's what's missing in American culture. We think that our job is to teach our children how to be happy, how to feel good about themselves, but that's not our job. Our job is to teach our children, sons and daughters, how to be responsible citizens and, and to work with their fellow men in that regard and to be able to take care of themselves and those around them. And, and this is reflected in the New Testament. Turn with me to this first passage here in Ephesians chapter 4. We're just going to go give one place. We're going to work off this passage. I think this is a very important passage. I won't deal much with the broader context of this, but here's just an exhortation from God's apostle, Paul. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he might have something to give to him who has need. A simple statement, but there's a lot packed into that statement. That this passage here illustrates a what several, it's, it, ha, it only exists because people weren't doing this. Okay, Much of the New Testament is written the way it is because people weren't doing what that passage says they ought to be doing. It's a reflect a reflection of a need. In this case, it obviously tells you that some people were stealing. There are three ways to make a living. There are three ways to get along in the world that every person encounters one way or the other. So when you got a young man in this society who comes along and he turns of age and he has to figure out what he's going to do. I got a friend out in Belle Glade, my brother's superintendent. He said, when I turned 18, Mike, he said, my mother had a lot of kids out there in the Glades. He said, I turned 18, called me in the kitchen that evening, set me down at the table, said, George, and she slid a quarter, excuse me, a $20 bill. She slid a $20 bill across the table toward me and said, there it is. He said, I looked at her. He says, I, you, tomorrow night you need to have a different place to sleep. I'm giving you this 20 bucks to give you a head start on life. Now it's up to you. To, you're 18. Now it's up to you to make, to make your way. And he said, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I thought my mother loved me. She said, no, you're a grown man now. You need to make your way in this world. And he said, I slept on people's floors for weeks. I hustled. I got myself a job. I had no money. 20 bucks. That got him through for a couple days. He said, I had to hustle and make my, make my way in this world. Now, he's a, he should be retired already. Hardworking man, lived an honorable life, got buku money, but he worked hard every day for that money, starting at a young age because he was responsible for himself. So he, he's lived an honorable life and I admire him for that. Now, I'm not saying that's the way you should do your children when they turn 18. But, on the other hand, there's nothing wrong with that in many ways. You need to be responsible, young men, to take care of yourself. 
There's different ways to do it. Different timetables people have. But you need to be responsible. So here's what you get when you get that point. When the mother's when the mother slid the twenty bucks across the table to George, he could have decided, well, I know what I'm going to do. I know some people got some stuff. I'll go take it from them. I'll go get their stuff. Do young men decide they're going to do that? Why, by the boatloads, they decide they're going to do that. They decide they're going to keep doing that, and they do it on Wall Street as well as on the streets of Belle Glade. They decide the way I'm going to make my living is I'm going to take from other people. And that's the way you can do it. The Bible says, let him that stole, who's had a practice of living, making his way in the world by stealing, let him no longer steal. So you can make a living by taking if you'd like to. This is against Bible teaching. This is ungodly. It is immoral. And it will earn you a spot in the lake of fire if that's where you make your living, by taking from other people. The Bible respects the principle of private property. I know that modern culture does not, and Karl Marx does not, but the Bible respects the private property of individuals. Thou shalt not steal is written into the Ten Commandments, and that implies very, very explicitly that there's such a thing as private property, that what's that person's property is theirs and is not yours. It also says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. Is that about property? Yes, it's about property. It's also about his wife, but that deals with the heart that leads to the idea of stealing because I want more than I got, and so I'm just going to go take it from somebody else. This is wrong. I don't care how much of our society is based on this. I don't care how much politicians promote this or defend this. The Bible condemns it, and you need to understand that. You need to go get your own stuff. Now, the Bible also teaches that you need to be content with the stuff that you have whatever it may be. However much or little it is, you need to be content with what you have and learn to live with that and live on that and respect that. There's no shame in being poor. I know in our culture there's a shame in that, but in the Bible, in the Bible, there is no shame in being poor. At least that's how my, I was brought up and watching my grandparents and relatives. They were poor and their families were even poorer the generation before that. And, and they, there was no shame in that. It just, they didn't like it. But that's the way it was. Now then, he says in Titus 2, for example, even speaking of slaves or bond servants, his word bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Not always having to have that smart answer back and not always criticizing what their, their, uh, the one in authority over them says. This is you, you probably deal with this where you work. There's always this kind of character who is always unhappy about everything and always answers back to the boss. Maybe if you're a boss, you experience this. Nothing you say is ever correct or good or right because somebody's always going to be displeased with it. And not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity or faithfulness that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. So you have a Christian who's a servant, even a bond servant. When the temptations of being a servant or not having as much as your master or being in an inferior position in society is the temptation to steal or to pilfer. Pilfer is taking small amounts secretly. It's kind of the idea of pilfering. Always looking for what you can steal and go home with. We used to call it putting the five-finger discount on stuff in stores. There's other terms for it. 
The Bible here tells you, admitting the fact that you may be a bondservant, not well off, it warns you about that. This is not the way that you're to make your way in the world as a Christian. And I know that's hard to think about, but there's nothing honorable about that. There's dishonor. You'll bring shame upon yourself. You will live in shame when you do this. It will breed all kind of other character flaws of a kind of arrogance. And eventually it can often lead to violence because it leads to a love of having other, a love of other people's things. This is not faithfulness. You need to show faithfulness in things that you do toward the people around you and toward your own possessions and toward your responsibilities. So you don't get to steal from the company you work for just because you think they have more money than you. I know that's popularly taught and believed, but if you're a Christian, you have to eliminate that idea. We cannot live like our society teaches us to live and be Christians. This is just the way it is, rich or poor. And of course, rich people pilfer too, but this passage is directed to the poor. So he says, let him who, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands. So rather than stealing, the antidote to stealing is laboring or working. The word labor really to me carries a different connotation than working. Uh, some work, all work is work. But the laboring here, it, it has the idea, at least it, perhaps the way it's used, of putting forth a lot of effort, extreme effort, unpleasant effort is the idea of laboring. And so the, the, the opposite of stealing is putting forth that unpleasant effort. I tried to teach my children growing up and my grandkids now when they talk about, you know, uh, they talk about how unpleasant their job is or they don't like you know, every kid gets a job the first day or two. The job is the best job they ever had. Great job. And two weeks later, I ask him two weeks later, terrible, worst job, you know, terrible thing. Okay. And the reason is because they have to work. And they mention the things about it that they don't like. I try to tell them, if the job was fun, your boss would be doing it himself. The reason he's paying you to do it is because it's no fun. It's dirty and laborious or boring. And he, so he pays you to do it because you don't have the skill that he does and so it's where you belong. I said, so if it was fun, he'd be doing it. Right over the head. <laughs> Completely missed the point. It's work. That's why you're doing it. That's what... And you know, this is such a... I know this sounds so old-fashioned. There should be a sign... You know, what is it? Antiquated, out of date, anachronism flashing behind me. You know, stop listening to old men. You know, that side should be flashing. But the truth is, work is good for you. It really is. I hate to say that, and you think, well, he's a preacher. Well, he doesn't even work. I know. I understand. <laughs> I have worked before. When I tell people about my job and they want to know how this works, I said, look, there's only a couple of jobs in the whole world. You can get paid an exorbitant salary for working a couple hours a week. There's only a few jobs. It's not my fault you're not qualified for that, and I am. I don't know what to do about that. That's what I tell them. So you should have planned ahead a little better. But in the event, every job, I tell the young ladies that want to get a job because they're bored at home, every job has dirty diapers. There's not a job that you can get in any field of study that doesn't have dirty diapers that you have to change. That's unpleasant. Nobody wants to do it. 
Every job has that. That's part of it. This is actually good for you and your soul, mostly because it humbles you, which we all could use a heavy, healthy dose of. Humbles you, and you need to learn to do that. You need to be humble. Every child, every young man needs to dig ditches and work on a roof and needs to clean out sewers. All, every ma- young man needs to do those things so he can learn about his place in the world. I've learned that my hands just do not fit shovels. God made it that way. My hands don't fit shovels very well. I have to use shovels, but they don't fit. They seem to fit other people's hands better than mine. Go to my brother's yesterday to help him out. He is out there in the backyard with a post hole digger. You know, I said, I got a PhD too. It's in my garage. You know? Anyway, somehow his hands fit the post hole digger. So, yes, it's labor. But we think stealing is easier. And funny thing is, sometimes people put more effort effort into learning how to steal than they do in learning how to get an honorable job. It would take them just as much brain power to learn how to do, to do the job that would be honorable than the one that they're doing now that's stealing. It takes just as much work. So taking is a way. And then receiving is a way to make a living. He says you work so you can give something to him who has need. There are people that have need. And they receive what they have because people give it to them. And there's nothing wrong with that under certain conditions. You will all be in a position in your life, if you haven't all been already, in which people will have to give you things because you won't be able to take care of yourself. We're all going to be in that position. That, that's what, where life takes you. And sometimes it takes you along the way it takes you to that position where you find yourself in need. My wife and I, from the time we've been married, at the time we got married, a young couple, having a bunch of kids, we have been where people had to help us. It just was no other way for us to make it very well, except people had to give us some money or give us some help, a place to stay, or or some food, or a car, or whatever it was. We had to have help along the way. I wasn't proud of that. It hurt me. But it's what was necessary to take care of my wife and children. But that's part of life, being sometimes in need. But when you make that a lifestyle, as a young person in particular, where you're just the one going to be taking from other people or receiving from other people, it's not the right thing to do. But you need to understand that there are ta- there are people who need to receive in order to make it in this world. You don't plan on this. Good people don't plan on being in need, but they are in need. And, and we try to minimize those situations as much as possible, but they happen to people. That's a hard thing to to accept sometimes. I saw my grandfather go through this a little bit as he got older, where he had to take things from people, gave him gifts. and He finally learned to do a little better with it, but it hurt him as a man who had worked through the Depression and didn't eat a lot of time so he could feed his family. My grandmother said he just didn't eat a lot of the time at supper after working all day because there wasn't enough as many beans as needed to go around to all the children. So it was hard for him later in life to take something from other people who tried to help him in any way, shape, or form. He just didn't want it. And it's a difficult thing to do. But there comes a time, once again, it humbles you. And you need to understand that receiving is honorable in certain circumstances. There's nothing wrong with it. The Bible says so right here that we ought to help those who have need. And we should. And I want to talk more about that as the sermon goes on. And you see this, for example, with the Apostle Paul as he was teaching and preaching and going around. He worked with his own hands. He, he worked as a tent maker, 
when he had to, but there were still times when he just simply did not have enough. And he said to the Thessalonians here, here, uh, I mean to the Philippians in chapter 4, even when he was in Thessalonica, even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. He praises this church because they sent him help when he needed it. More than once, almost on a regular basis, they were sending this money to him. But in the book of 2 Thessalonians, in verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 6, uh, Paul before that had said he, he commanded them that they would draw themselves from, from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received. Now there's that word disorder again. Order, remember I talked about living an orderly life? Well, Paul, I base that partly on what Paul calls a disorderly life here. That there were some Christians in the first century who were living in a disorderly life and that is that they were not taking care of themselves when they could. They could be taking care of themselves, but they weren't. They were living off other people. And he said, this is disorderly to do this. And he said, I want you to withdraw from these brethren who will not take care of themselves when they can. They won't hold a job. They won't work. They won't do the things they need to do to take care of themselves because they'd rather live off other people. This is not, he said, the tradition you receive from us, us apostles. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you. Nor do we eat any bread free of man's bread free of charge, but work with our labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It's one thing to say to somebody, I need help. Do you have any work I can do? Let me do something for you. Then it's just every, every month or so beg for money when you can do something different. Many people can't do anything different and there's no shame in that. But some, some people can. So Christians need to have this idea that they're not going to live off other people's bread free of charge without labor, if it's at all possible. Because that's walking disorderly. And, um, you know, we've kind of made a national pastime of that sometimes. It's, it's the way, it shouldn't be that way. It isn't good for anybody involved. It isn't good for the receiver nor the, nor the one who gives it. You know, um, I, I see this in, as a preacher, that when I personally give people money, and I don't mind doing that, but it over time alters friendships. It alters relationships. Money will poison friendships. And I hate that, but it's true. You can't stop it from being so. Because the Bible is clear in the Old Testament that the, that the borrower is servant to the lender. So it alters a normal relationship. When you become a borrower of somebody all the time, it alters relationship. Now, now someone like my grandfather who needed help when he was older, that's not that's not the same relationship. That's a different thing. There was there was a free gift going on there. So, but but uh, it's a problem. So, when you go back to this passage, then you see you have the taking, you have the receiving as another way to make a living, and then the third way that this passage mentions to make a living in this world is working. Let him who stole steal no more. But rather let him labor working with his hands that he may, uh, with what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. This is a critical passage for modern times. Because he's saying here that the way that you should live as a Christian as much as possible is to work, not just for yourself, that's part of it, but so that you may have to give to him that has need. This isn't just a selfish, oh, it's a capitalist plot, you know, to keep you working. This is different. This is the way it ought to be. One reason you work 
And so you have extra to give to people that have need. You're able to share. And even if you don't have extra, you have enough that you can share with somebody else. And there it is. I'm very grateful, uh, considering, and it's a big story, where, where we were when we came to work with this church in 1995, 96. I'm very grateful that today I have a home. That God gave me a home. A nice home. It's not new anymore. Used, I still think it's new, but it's not new. It's uh, 20 years old, more than 20 years old. But I'm thankful that I have a home because that enables me to live and my wife to live free from the weather and discomfort and shelter, as God says we need. But it also gives me the opportunity for other people to be sheltered too and to give to other people with that home. And... My wife has used it this way all these years. I think that's why God has blessed us. But there have been, that we built a, for example, we built an addition on that with my father-in-law's help, her father's help for them to live in when my mother-in-law got Alzheimer's. But that, that apartment has only been empty about two, three months since it was built. In one year, how many was it, Judy? Like 42 people stayed in our home in one year a few years ago. 42 different people stayed in our home, short or long term. Now, I'm not saying that to brag on it. I'm not saying that that way. Don't take that wrong. But but you need to take whatever God gives you and do what is good with that that you may have to give to him that has need. Sometimes it works out that way. Some other people, those opportunities don't have that, that. They're more able to just to give money or some other thing that they can give, time, food, whatever it may be. But this is why you work. Not just so you could pile up stuff and get rich and get brand new clothes every year and always look for the new, the biggest TV electronics, so you can have to give to him that has need. That's why you should work. And when you when you replace in a person's heart in the world the idea that my my thought process is going to go into who I can take from and I'm on the take all the time. And you know people like that. you got to be careful about them. When they talk to you, they're only looking for an opportunity to take something from you. The people that I've been accosted by in my life, physically assaulted by in my life, for the most part came up to me friendly at first. But they were sizing me up to see what they could take from me. You go from that mindset of taking, and Paul was taking these brethren, these people, from that mindset to where their mindset is, no, let me labor so I have extra and maybe God will give me the chance to give that to somebody else. This is the mindset of early Christians. It's what we should have. It's what, what you should plant in your sons and daughters in, as they grow in the world. And, and you know, people want to make a difference in the world. Well, I say, first of all, make a difference for good. Jeffrey Dahmer made a difference in the world. You need to make a difference for good in the world. And this is the way you do it right here. You do it by working and by laboring with your hands. Uh, Paul says in Titus 3, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. I know I'm repeating a sermon here that I did some years ago, but he said do it constantly, so I'm good. I'm okay. Do it constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. 
The word maintain good, that phrase maintain good works in some translations is professed honest occupations. You might see a margin in your, in your, in your version. Profess honest occupations. It's this idea of working honestly and forthrightly with your hands to do what you need to do in this world. He said, these are good things. Let our people also learn, our people being Christians, let them also learn to maintain good works. Do the same thing, profess honorable occupations, that they may, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Why do we work honestly? Why do we develop a career and learn how to, learn how to progress in that career or whatever job it is? We learn how to do better and better at it so we can have more and we can advance because it gives us opportunities to do good, to meet urgent needs, wherever they are. And if you're looking for them, you will see opportunities God places before you to do good to people around you, whether it's somebody in a store or whoever it may be, you can do good things for them. And because we don't want to be, as it were, unfruitful. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, command those who are rich in this present age, and that's pretty much everybody who's listening to me this morning, in the way that we look, should look at it, not the way the world may see it, but the way that we should look at it. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things. So you can be rich, and you can be rich in a haughty way, in the worldly way, or you can be rich in the godly way, not trusting in those riches, but trusting in God who gave them to you. Let them do good, he says, with these riches that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Ready to give, willing to share. Does that, does that connotate your spirit, your thought process? Ready to give, willing to share. It doesn't mine all the time. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Ready to give, willing to share. That wouldn't be a bad motto for us for a year in this church. But the end of all things, Paul Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore serious and watchful in your prayers, looking ahead, being prepared, thinking about the future. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another, hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. A steward is someone who takes care of somebody else's property. God pictures us as stewards. God gives us property, however much or small it may be. He gives us property or stewardship over what he thinks we can handle. And the more we prove we can take care of that and, and do right with it, he gives us more. So we can minister to other people, not so we can be prophets and drive around in an expensive car. That's not the purpose of it. You see some preachers preach that, but that's not what I'm preaching. But he says, you have received these gifts... Now, man, now use those gifts. Be hospitable without grumbling. I've got another sermon on that, but let's just say with this. Why is, why is hospitality liable to lead you to grumbling or murmuring? Hospitality is sharing with people that you don't know or sharing with other people. That's what it is. It's giving things to other people, being, giving them food and shelter, whatever it may be. Hospitality. But it's because it costs money and it's trouble. It costs it takes time and money. That's why we grumble about it. 
It's not easy to share what you have, share your home, share your possessions, be generous with other people. It costs you time and money. Most of us want to keep our time and money for ourselves. This has become more of a pressure in America as I've gotten older. This is more what we find. I used to be able to walk around the neighborhood, knock on people's doors, talk to them about the Bible. But now, everybody who doesn't have a fence up wants to put one up. They want to put, put they want to electrify that electric doorbell. So when I press it, I fall over dead, you know, because they're home and they want nobody to bother them. Their house is theirs. They retreat there. They want nobody to bother them there. And I understand that. But how does that lead to sharing? How does that lead to hospitality? It, it often doesn't. You see, it's going the opposite direction. Paul said in Colossians 2, 5, though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am willing in I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. I rejoice to see your good order, that you Colossians are leading now not a disorderly life where there's no direction, there's no purpose to that, but now you have an orderly life. You know, uh, we have this little thing. We had a picture in our little bathroom there, June, a picture of... A couple of little kids sitting on a bank of a river or something like that. To look like little kids of ours. I don't know why, but it's not there anymore. She painted the bathroom a year or so ago. and All I saw is a little nail on the wall. So I'm thinking, this is an opportunity for me to buy something to hang there that will be immediately put in the closet. <laughs> if I buy it, because my, my choices would be poor. But, but I was thinking... <laughs> I don't know what I was going to say now. <laughs> I'm so I got so worked up over you know doing something stupid, but uh, um, I thought well maybe I could get something that says cleanliness is next to godliness. As I'm stepping into the shower, I will see that sign and I'll feel better about it. And I thought no, nah, that's stupid. It is stupid, isn't it? Not even in the Bible. But orderliness is in the Bible. Okay. That doesn't mean if your garage is cluttered, you're not orderly. That's just talking about the way you live. It might include a lot of stuff. An orderly life, in my view, might include a lot of stuff in your garage. Because an orderly life would be based upon your desire to use it for good and help other people have what you need, have what other people need. In your, and the place to keep that's in your garage sometimes. So an orderly life is laid out according to God's plan that you have an understanding of what you're doing, why you want to be that way. It might might be disorderly to some other people, but it might be orderly according to God. But this means, young people, learn to get up early in the morning, learn to brush your teeth, comb your hair, wear decent clothes, sitting in the circumstance you're in, go to work every day, Go do something useful every day. If you don't have to work, go and do something useful, something productive, something that benefits you and other people every day. Go do that. Come home, go to bed, take care of yourself, and take care of other people around you. Look around you. This is an orderly life. This is what he was calling the Colossians to do. Live that kind of life. Oh, I know that sounds boring. There's no adventure. God will throw in plenty of adventure. If you'll do that, you'll have plenty of opportunities. You want to find yourself. You want to fulfill yourself. And living an orderly life is based upon those principles. You will find plenty of opportunities for that there in that life. 
But if you just live a life every day, coming, getting up whenever you please, going to bed whenever you please, and doing whatever you please all day long, disorderly life, working whenever you think you might want to, if you have to, unless you can get somebody, or knocking somebody over the head to get what you need, you'll never have opportunities to do good. You'll never have opportunities to, to reach out and do the right thing. It won't be there. So yes, establish these things, these habits in your life. I can't teach you each one, but they all go with being a Christian. And so, you know, being prepared, prepare, this is what we're talking about here, preparation. We need to be the people that have extra generators, if anybody does, to give to people. We need to be the people that have the resources, if we don't have a place for that, to help people get what they need when these storms hit. We need to be the people that have our houses prepared so we can get our shutters up quickly so we can go help other people. Not so we can watch TV. There are people in this church, the next time a storm hits here, who are going to need help putting up their shutters, securing their place. And there's people, we saw this before, and we'll see it again. There are people that after the storm comes through need someone who has a chainsaw or knows how to use a chainsaw and a trailer to move to get back in their house. Knows how to do things and has a, a capability of either doing it or paying for it to be done to get their life back on track again. We need to be the people that can do that. And we'll only do that if we're prepared by living an orderly life each day that goes by before the storm hits. You can't make that preparation when the storm hits. It's too late. And that's what the Bible is telling us. Be ready to do good works. Maintain these things. So being prepared is for the young. It's for single people. You have a lot of opportunities. It's for young married couples. It's for You can do things, many things to do to help other people. For, for middle-aged people like me, even for some of our older people. It's even for them. Yep, it's for them. Too. So... Paul tells Timothy that if a man will do these kind of things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. That's what we ought to have in mind. And so the big question, we've got to stop this morning, is are you prepared for judgment? Are you prepared ahead? Preparation always takes thinking ahead. Are you prepared to hear the gospel? Do you understand the gospel that Christ came and died for your sins, that you are a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is, Jesus Christ is God's Son? Are, are you willing to turn away from the sin that you've committed and turn to a new kind of life? That's what repentance is. Are you willing to confess that you believe that Jesus Christ is the answer to that? That's the confession made with the mouth. We read about this. And we can, we'll, uh, can talk to you more about that if you need to be have more about that, or to be baptized for the remission of your sins, buried with Christ in baptism, raised up to walk a new kind of life. This is the plan that God set out. You need to think about that because this is the preparation for eternity to become a Christian and just begin to serve Him in this way. Without this, without doing these things, you're not prepared for eternity for judgment. Thank you for listening. We're going to sing this song that's been selected by our brother here uh, in just a moment before us, that that uh, number um, 588, Sinners Jesus Will Receive. We're going to sing this song. And if we can help you, you come down right to the front row as we sing the song. And we'll talk to you about what you need. And we can either baptize you into Christ or pray with you about a wrong or a sin or whatever else you may need. Come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.